This morning we're turning to not 2 Corinthians. Um, We will be uh, working from Acts chapter 1. Um, Given that it is Pentecost Sunday, we're just going um, away from our our, uh, series through 2 Corinthians uh, for a week. As we come now to this passage in Acts chapter 1, I chose this passage because it offers us uh, just a, a little glimpse into some principles um, that lead into Acts chapter 2, which is actually where we read about the outpouring of the Spirit. And one of the questions that, I, that I'm bringing to this text is, what accounts for the radical transformation in the lives of these disciples who, you know, on the night of, Christ, uh, of Jesus' arrest and, his, and the day of his crucifixion, they're nowhere to be found except for John. They've scattered. They're fearful. And then we come then to Acts chapter 2. The Spirit is poured out, of course, and they go out with power and boldness, proclaiming the news of Jesus to the very people who crucified him. What accounts for this? What leads into this? And what I want to say is is Acts chapter 1 actually gives us some of these these principles that I'm going to highlight three of them, three principles. Um, that help at least um, uh, us to wrap our minds around what made the apostolic early uh, uh, New Testament church witness effective and powerful, okay? So that's where we're going. We're going to look at three principles. With that in mind, would you stand just out of uh, reverence to the Lord as we read from his word? This is Acts. I'm going to be reading verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then 12 um, through 14. Let me just... In the first book, O Theophilus, so this is written by uh, Dr. Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers." Would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, our helper, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be nurtured by your truth. 
so that we might better love God, love one another, and serve the world. Amen. You may be seated. As we work through these three principles, um, you, you may not, you probably won't remember all three. But if you just remember one, uh, one that may seem the most relevant to your situation, um, well, I think it does have the potential just to help uh, you and to help us together uh, be more effective uh, in our witness to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first principle is we have to appreciate what I'm calling the ordinary supernatural ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay? We have to appreciate the ordinary supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. The principle seen just back in uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, Luke writes, you know, in the first book, that's, he's, writing, uh, he's speaking of the gospel of Luke, and he's writing to a, a certain patron, O Theophilus, and where he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he, so he was taken up, he ascended, but only after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The key phrase there that I just want to highlight is that Jesus had given commands to the apostles and we're specifically told that Jesus, the Son of God, did this in the power of the Holy Spirit. What is described here is really true of Jesus' entire ministry. He preached, taught, and ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this means that Jesus serves as a model to us, uh, not because, see, well, the way we think of Christ and his ministry is, we think ordinarily that Jesus is operating out of his divine nature. This is how he is accomplishing mighty works, that he seems to know what's in the, the hearts of, uh, of, uh, and in the, the minds of, of the people around him. And we, we seem to think this, this is all because he's God. Now, this is true. But as you work through the, the Gospels, as you work through um, the theological narrative concerning Jesus, what we're meant to, to see is that primarily, I don't, I don't want to say this is exclusively true, but ordinarily it's true that Jesus is operating out of his human nature. And because he's operating as a full man who has to live the same life that we live in a world that we live in, he has to experience the temptations that we, f- we feel only without sinning. We think he does this by his divine nature, but Scripture actually shows us that he is, it, it, it highlights and emphasizes that he's being directed, that he's being guided, that he's being empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And you can see as you kind of begin to connect the dots that this is an encouragement to us in the sense that then Jesus truly is an example for us because we teach that the same Spirit that filled Jesus now fills us. And, and this leads us uh, just to this idea um, uh, that the Holy Spirit often operates, um, even through Jesus, in ordinary 
non-miraculous way. Sometimes we think of Jesus, he's constantly, you know, multiplying the, the, the loaves of bread and the fish, and, and he's um, uh, calming the storms and, and walking on water and so forth. But ordinarily, he's just preaching and teaching. You don't see like this miraculous power um, operating through him. You see what I'm referring to as this ordinary work of the Spirit, this ordinary. And because it is the Holy Spirit, of course, it's supernatural. So this is where this, this category, it's a middle category. Think of a three-layer cake. The bottom layer is the natural world. It's, it's the way we operate apart from the Lord's strength, apart from the Lord's power, the way we operate in a uh, natural world under the laws of physics. That's, that's the, the natural category. And then the top layer of this cake would be the supernatural, what we often associate with these kind of supernatural, uh, vivid miracles. You know, this is Jesus, you know, multiplying the loaves and the fish or walking on water or um, healing uh, the the paralytics and and those who are born blind and so forth. You can see this outpouring of power in a very, almost a a public and and, uh, visual way. That would be the top layer, the, this, the extraordinary supernatural. But there's this middle category, and that's the ordinary supernatural work of the Spirit. And what I want to, um, and, and the way this works is, um, what does this look like? Well, it looks like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the Spirit working in a non-flashy, but equally empowered uh, direction. Uh, This is the work of the Spirit that's not going to garner the headline news, but it's the power of the Spirit nonetheless. Or as you work through Acts, God is gathering people from all backgrounds and tribes and tongues and nations. He's molding them, a people, some of whom had been taught to hate each other. And just through the ordinary preaching of the the apostles, the evangelists going out, these people who once hated each other, their hearts are changed. And the result of this is that they begin to love one another, even across ethnic, um, and cultural divides. Now, outwardly speaking, there's, you don't see this, this display of miraculous power, but what you are witnessing, and in some sense you are seeing this, is something, this change that is explained by the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, this is critical to the work of the Spirit. This is what, when, when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, the apostles are able to go out, and people from who had traveled to Jerusalem for this feast, the Feast of Pentecost, they begin to hear the apostles speaking in their own language. What's happening there? Well, this is a reversal of the curse that took place way back in the Old Testament at the Tower of Babel. And that the curse at the Tower of Babel was because of human you know, pride and sufficiency, to try to build a world in their own image apart from God, God curses them, and it leads to division. It leads to tribalism, the creation of new languages and culture, and, and, and this just creates, they can't work together any longer. This is part of the curse of sin. 
And so when the Spirit is poured out, we're meant to see that this is the reversal of the curse of Babel, where people hear the message spoken in their own native and local languages. Well, as the Spirit goes forth, and we see this even today, that the gospel brings unity. Well, this is the ordinary work of the Spirit. Or think of another way to look at the ordinary work of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what comes next in that section? Well, interestingly, it's not about the gifts of the Spirit. It's not about, you know, being able to speak in tongues or, or to uh, receive words of knowledge or to be able to have the power to heal. Um, it's nothing of that kind. What comes after that, that exhortation to be filled with the Spirit is just ordinary instruction to husbands and wives on how to love and respect each other. It's given to children on how to honor and obey their parents. And then it's given to masters and slaves, or we'd bring it to the present, employers and employees about how to have healthy, mutually respective, you know, hardworking relationships with one another. So what is it that is being emphasized in Ephesians 5 um, and beginning of chapter 6? It's that where the Spirit is, you see healthy relationships, You see healthy marriages, healthy children. You see um, work relationships that are working out well. This is the ordinary work of the Spirit, but it is supernatural all the less. In Galatians 4, 6, the apostle writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Every Christian believer is promised the presence of the same Spirit that filled Jesus. Our ability to sincerely call God Father as his son or daughter is evidence of the Spirit's presence in us. So here's, again, the illustration. So what does the invisible work of the Spirit look like? Sometimes you don't feel any different. You don't see anything. Think of when you have to go to a hospital. And, and because you have some illness, say it's cancer, and you have to receive a radiation treatment. Well, you know, they, they, they bring you into a room. Often they'll give you like a lead shield. And, and then they focus this cancer on the part of your body that has to be irradiated. All you do, you sit there for maybe a minute or two. You hear a click, and that's it. And, and you at first don't feel anything. But that radiation is present, and it is working um, within your, your body, even though you can't see it or, or hear it um, uh, or even feel it, at least not immediately. In some sense, that's the way the Spirit is. You can't see, you can't feel, but the Spirit is powerfully at work in his, uh, in his people. The second principle is that we need to do church in the second person plural. Okay, this, I get that this might be a little um, confusing. The second principle is um, that, that we need to think, and, and this is the idea of thinking not just in terms of the I, but in terms of the we. And this is all through Acts chapter 1, um, just beginning in, in verse 4. Um, 
There he says, but you, uh, well, let me go back to verse four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me. And then he goes on in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What we sometimes miss is that that you is not, you know, first person singular. It's, it's second person plural. He's referring to a group of people. And, and this is about an attitude shift that we just need to understand as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Christ. L- let me just turn to another passage that is often, um, in some sense, misunderstood here. This is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, ordinarily, when we read that verse, we receive that as like this very individual, personal promise to me. (laughs) The Lord has made me, my body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me just go and read that next verse. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, we're thinking of the temple as my body, right? But that you in 1 Corinthians 3.16 is actually second person plural. It's, it's, he's referring to a group, and specifically, he's referring to the church. It is the church that, is the, um, that corresponds to the Old Testament temple. Now, it's not to say that the Spirit, I just said the Spirit, does dwell in us as individuals. That's very true. But the emphasis, this is what I want you to see, is that the emphasis is not on our individual experience of the Spirit. The the emphasis of the New Testament is on the church's experience of of the Holy Spirit. It's the church in this context that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a matter of emphasis. Uh, and, and so let me try to put it this way. The Christian life is less like golf, and it's more like basketball or soccer. Now, what do I mean? Following Jesus is not an individual sport. That's what golf is. Golf is individuals competing against other individuals. Best score wins. That's not the New Testament understanding of the Christian life. The Christian life following Jesus is a team sport. It's more like basketball. So in basketball, individuals, they can just, they can just pad stats, you know, in the stat book. And people love that, of course. But they can pad their stats all they like, and their team can still be terrible. And in some time, in some yeah, sometimes it's because the individual is playing a me sport, not a team sport, and they're not playing with the team. And it's actually because of the meism that the team suffers. The New Testament tells us that if we are to be effective as a church, we need to have a team mentality. We need to have a church-first mentality. And so the questions we need to be asking are not just simply, you know, um, uh, what's in it for me? (laughs) Is this church making me feel better? If it's not, I'm out. Okay, now that's the way we, we we're just trained to think this way. This is no judgment. 
But what we need to do is be shaped and conformed by the word of God and to begin to consider the needs of the you, second person plural, before we think of the first person, me. We need to, uh, yeah, we just need to learn to do church um, as a team sport or following Jesus as a team sport. And then this leads into this second principle just flows naturally into a third principle. And that is, and we see this here in verse 14, that we need spiritual alignment. And we, we develop this spiritual alignment as we are immersed in prayer and in the word. Okay? But we see this in verse 14. All these, so at this point, you have the disciples that actually list the 11 disciples, um, and then there are women followers that are also named or, or their list are uh, referred to. And then Mary and her sons, they're all in this room. They're all praying together. This is after Jesus ascends into heaven and prior to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. So verse 14, notice how it describes them. All these, with one accord, that's the the phrase I want to highlight, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together, okay? All these, in one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, again, together. This is such a powerful verse, so here we have this word, this phrase, one accord. It's from a Greek uh, word, homo humadon, homo humadon. And that's just, it could be translated of one mind. That means they were all on the same page. They were mutually committed to prayer and to the study of Christ's teaching and the word of God. So let me use an illustration, um, this time from the world of physics. I could use sports again, but I thought, well, <laughs> I already used that one. So let's use physics. All right, so think you have two bars of iron, okay? One bar is magnetized. It's a magnet. The other is not. What's the difference? Well, in each bar of iron, each, each bar is made up of these little molecules, and each of these little molecules have a, a, a charge to it. It has a, um, a positive pole and a negative pole, okay? Now, when all of these molecules and when that pole, when they're all faced in the same direction, it creates a magnetic force. It creates this attraction, this magnetic attraction. That is when you have a magnet, But when all those molecules are facing in every random direction, they just cancel each other out, and there's no attractive magnetic power in that second bar of iron. What the early church, what the New Testament church shows us is they were like that magnet. They're all focused. They're all working in the same direction. And the result of this is, is that they become this powerful, magnetic um, um, proclamation and witness almost wherever they went. They were, they had spiritual alignment. Alignment produces power that can attract. It does heavy lifting. 
And so Jesus wants us to be aligned so that the power of the Spirit can flow in us and through us and out to the world and attract the world to Jesus Christ. Now, what helps increase? How do we cultivate the spiritual alignment? Well, there are lots of things that contribute to the church's alignment in the Spirit, but but two core um, uh, behaviors that help create alignment are, again, in this chapter. Chapter 1 and 2 tells us how they have been taught by Jesus. They had been receiving his commands, um, even and up to his ascending into heaven. And then verse 14 shows us that they were also committed to going before the Lord in prayer uh, with each other. Verse 14 describes them in earnest prayer together, and part of the reason that they're aligned is because of their commitment to seeking the Lord's will together. It wasn't just a quick prayer at the start of a committee meeting, which is always a good thing to do. But prayer is an intentional act in which Christians give God their full and undivided attention. So that's what we're doing in prayer. It allows God and allows the Spirit to align his people. If we examine 2,000 years of church history and we ask for one verse to describe the secret to revival and reformation, you could make an argument. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 uh, shows us the way. Um, It's when people come together to pray who seek the power of the Spirit uh, that this seems to be the key to cultural change, to an empowered church, an empowered witness. In Acts chapter 2, so the Spirit's poured out, and then we're just given this little glimpse at how the New Testament church was operating. This is Acts 2, 42 and following. And they, that is the followers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings um, uh, and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a group of people empowered. This is a group of people um, uh, who understood these principles. They understood the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. They understood doing church in the second person plural, and they understood the the power of alignment, especially as they came together under the word and in prayer. Part of this is, one, modeled by the life and ministry of Jesus. So we have his example. But two, what we're describing here is the life of the Trinity, the love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have for one another and the way they are aligned in their outworking within the world. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we are grateful for your word. 
Lord, we're grateful just for the model, for the example of the early church, of, of the disciples and, and other followers of Christ who gathered together just out of faith, waiting upon you to uh, do your work. And so, Lord, in the same way, we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh upon us. Fall afresh upon your church. May we um, more and more effectively and empowered make your kingdom visible to one another and to the surrounding world. And so, Lord, we just pray it for the sake and in the name of Jesus, amen.